All right, so we're going to talk about the qualifications for elders and deacons, and this is kind of a continuation of what we talked about in our last men's meeting two months ago, back in October, when we looked at um, kind of beyond TCF. And so in thinking about qualifications for elders and deacons, I want to ask all the the young kids in the room, are you really excited about this topic? <laughs> huh? Elders and deacons? I want to encourage you to pay as much attention as you would to any other topic because you are already on the path toward eldership and deaconhood. You're already on the path there. It's, it's largely a matter of age and growing maturity, but you're already on the path. So this already applies to you. It's already relevant. And uh, before we get into the qualifications, I need to lay about 15 minutes worth of groundwork before we can get into those. And part of that's because um, when we read about the qualifications, there are some things that are assumed in the text. So, for instance, Paul assumes that Titus and Timothy know what the terms elders and deacons mean. He assumes that they know the difference between an elder and a deacon and what they do. And Paul assumes that Titus and Timothy understand why they're to appoint elders and deacons. Now, for Titus, it's only elders, but why Timothy is supposed to appoint elders and deacons. And so the groundwork that I want to lay first is what do the terms elders and deacons mean? And then what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? And then why were Timothy and Titus to appoint elders and deacons? What was the context there? So starting with the terminology, I've got three terms over here on the left side, elder, overseer, and shepherd. And so uh, three Greek terms in the New Testament kind of are used to describe those who bore primary responsibility for a congregation. And the translation is elder, overseer, and shepherd. And the terms are essentially synonymous. There's no clear outranking of one term to another. They all kind of point to the same thing. And I think the best place to see this is in Acts 20, 28, which you can turn to if you have your Bibles, but I'll read it. Acts 20, 28 says, Paul has summoned the elders from Ephesus. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see these people again. And, And he says that he probably isn't. And so he summons the elders at Ephesus, essentially saying goodbye, and he exhorts them with this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So these elders, he says, God has made you overseers. And the verb to care for the church of God, in Greek, it's literally the verb to shepherd. It's kind of an unfortunate translation there. I think it would be better to say, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you can see those terms all kind of relate to one another. No one outranks the other. And I think we can summarize it this way, if you want a, a kind of a definition. Elders are overseers who shepherd the church of God. That's who elders are. Elders are overseers who shepherd the church of God. Does that make sense? Now, additionally, nearly always, these terms appear in the plural. Elders, overseers, and shepherds. And it indicates that a congregation received leadership 
from a multiplicity of leaders, a plurality of leaders, rather than just a single individual. So that's elders, just kind of looking at those terms. As for deacons, we don't really know exactly what functions deacons performed, uh, those who had the office of deacon. The, the word, the Greek word, is used several times in the New Testament. It's used throughout the New Testament, but only in two places does it seem to refer to an office. So there, the word basically means ministers, but then over time there were ministers who held the office of deacon. And so 1 Timothy 3.10 says, And let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So deacons served in some way. We don't know exactly the way in which they served. Um, In English translations, you only find deacon in 1 Timothy in the list of qualifications for deacons and in Philippians. So Philippians 1.1 says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so both in 1 Timothy and in Philippians, there's elders and deacons. And in both places, elder comes first and deacon comes second. I don't know that we can draw a great distinction from that, but it does seem that there is a specific difference between the two. And elders come first and then deacons. So does that make sense as far as the terminology for elders and deacons? All right. Now, just thinking about the difference between elders and deacons. Uh, The character qualifications for elders and deacons are almost entirely the same. Um, The only real difference is that elders are to be able to teach, and deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So deacons aren't expected to be able to teach, but they have to believe what the faith teaches. And I think in understanding how elders and deacons are different, uh, but yet how they work together, we can look to the typology that's given to us in the scriptures. And by typology, I mean the Bible's habit of presenting people and events and institutions and things and then repeating them with increasing significance across the whole of scripture. Does that make sense? We've talked, we talk about typology every now and then, but it's, it's the way that the Bible presents people and institutions and things and then repeats them later on with increasing significance. So for an example from last night, thinking of last night, there's the heavenly temple and then there's the tabernacle and then there is the, the temple and then there's Ezekiel's visionary temple and now there's the church where God's presence dwells and dwells in us individually. So you can see how there's a repeated pattern, but it increases with significance as it goes. So does that make sense what I'm talking about with typology? And I think we can take the Bible's habit of doing that and make some inferences about how elders and deacons are different and how they relate together. So Adam is a priest in the garden. He's put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And these are priestly functions. But it's not good for him to be alone. And so God gives him the woman, Eve, to be his helper. And together they're to carry out this work that God has given Adam to do. All right? When we get to the priesthood in Exodus, we we know that there's Aaron, the high priest, and there's his son who are priests, and they conduct operations within the tabernacle. But there are also the Levites. And the Levites perform functions outside the tabernacle. 
And part of their work is to guard the tabernacle, kind of in the same way that Adam was to guard the garden. So Numbers 3.8 says this about the Levites. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And, and why were the Levites to guard the tabernacle? Anybody know? Because if somebody got into the tabernacle who wasn't supposed to be there, God's holiness would break out against the people and people would die. So the Levites had to make sure that nobody was going in in an, un, un, an unauthorized capacity. So they were guarding the tabernacle. So it's a different translation, but it's the same words that is used of Adam working and keeping the garden. Adam is guarding it. The Levites are guarding the tabernacle. The priests carry out their responsibilities within the tabernacle. The Levites carry out their responsibilities outside the tabernacle. But they work together to conduct Israel's worship and protect the people. Okay? In Acts 6, there's a disparity in the daily distribution of food where the Hellenistic widows, the non-Hebrew widows, are not getting the same in the daily distribution of food. And the 12 apostles gather and they appoint seven men to oversee the distribution fairly so that the 12 can devote themselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. Now, neither term elder or deacon is used in that story. But I do think that there's a relationship where you have the apostles who are in charge of the ministry of the word and prayer, and they delegate this responsibility for making sure that these needs are met. So there are different kinds of people with different responsibilities, but they're working together. Does that make sense? So I think, uh, and then, uh, you know, we see this also again with Moses and Joshua. Joshua is Moses' assistant, and we see this with Bezalel and Aholiab in uh, Exodus 31, that Bezalel is kind of like the chief craftsman, and Aholiab is, is his partner, his assistant in working with it. So when we come to elders and deacons, I, I don't think it's a stretch to see a connection to these previous types in the way that different kinds of jobs, different kinds of people come together to fulfill the thing that God's given them to do. I don't think it's a stretch to see a connection to Adam and Eve, the priests and Levites, and the twelve and the seven. Now, what kind of work do elders and deacons do together? And again, I think typology can help us here in seeing the connections. So Adam was a priest in the garden. He was to work it, to keep it, and that implied guarding some things. The priests and Levites were to guard the tabernacle against anybody coming in who wasn't supposed to be there. And elders and deacons shepherd the flock of God, and they protect and guard the church from error. So elders and deacons work together to care for the needs of the church and to guard the church and to protect it from error. Does that make sense? Can you see how they work together to do that? We'll, we'll get into this a little bit further. But the main thing that I want us to take from kind of the typological examples are you have two different kinds of people working together to fulfill the mission of God. And a lot of it has to do with guarding and protecting. And for elders and deacons, it's going to have to do with guarding and protecting. Kelly, from what yeah. type of error? Um, well, so I, actually, that's what I'm going to get into next. So the context in which Timothy and Titus were to appoint elders speaks a lot to what kind of error. So uh, 
If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This gives the context that Timothy is in in Ephesus and what Paul wants him to do. So beginning at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there are people in the church at Ephesus who are teaching different doctrine. And and I think this is very similar to something that Paul was writing to the Galatian church about, that there were people there who were pronouncing a different gospel. And Paul is saying there is no different gospel. There is only one gospel. But the different gospel that was being proclaimed was that Gentiles needed to become Jews. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to follow the rites of the law, the works of the law, in order to be saved. And I think that's, that's what this different doctrine is, that there are some in Ephesus. It has to do with what, what are called the Judaizers, those who are advocating for circumcision and the keeping of the law. There are some who are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies and speculation. I think, again, it was promoting all things Jewish, all things Old Testament, you know, and, and enforcing those that these are the things that really matter if you're going to be saved. There's a lot of vain discussion going on. And so I think there are some in the church who are pushing back toward the elements of Judaism and saying these are the things that really matter. We need to incorporate these in our lives as a church. Does that make sense? And Paul charges Timothy with getting things in order. And so who's going to help Timothy in getting these things in order? Well, it's elders and deacons who are going to help Timothy in getting these things in order. Titus. If you want to turn to Titus chapter 1, this gives the context for the things that Titus was facing. I think his situation is worse. So Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and then skipping down to verse 10. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Parenthetically, I used to think that Titus woke up one day and Paul was just gone. And then he gets this letter from Paul. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now skipping down to 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Titus has to put some things in order 
because there's a lot of disorder in Crete. He has a real mess on his hands. There are people who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, more Jewish myths. And again, there's the reference to the circumcision party. And so I think there are Judaizers in the churches who are trying to push back toward incorporating circumcision and keeping the works of the law. And so who's going to help Titus? Who's going to help Titus put things in order? It's elders. He says, I want you to appoint elders in every town. Now, one of the differences is that Titus is not going to be there long term. If you, if you look in Titus 3, Paul says, uh, essentially, come to me as soon as you can. And so Titus is to appoint elders and then leave. And then these elders are going to be in charge of putting things in order while Titus is gone. So in both Ephesus and in Crete, there's bad stuff going on. In particular, it seems like those of the circumcision party are seeking to drag believers back to Judaism. And it's getting in the churches and Titus and Timothy need to get it out of the churches. And the elders, and to some extent the deacons, are going to play a significant role in doing that. So does that answer your question, Jeremy, as far as the error? I think it's specific to that. So here's where all this preliminary stuff talking about the terms, the typology, and the context. Here's where all this is going. If you're Timothy and you're Titus, what kind of men are you looking for to help you put things in order? What kind of men do you need on your side to undertake this work? What kind of character is going to be needed to put things in order? Now we can talk about qualifications for elders and deacons. We all good so far? Any questions before we, we, we jump into the qualifications themselves? We're looking at what kind of men, what kind of character is needed for this kind of work. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3, and I'm only going to cover the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 because the qualifications in Titus are largely the same, and in the few places where they're a little bit different, uh, I will bring those things from Titus into the discussion in Timothy. So we're mainly going to be, from now on, in 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So noble task, in Greek, is literally good work. It's kind of a dressed-up way of saying good work, but it's the same term that's used in a lot of other places in the New Testament where we talk about doing good works. And so aspiring to the office of overseer is somebody who aspires to a good work. The work of an elder is a good work and it's worth desiring. And, and because it's worth desiring, you don't want somebody who does it just under compulsion. And so 1 Peter 5.2, Peter writes, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing it out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will. And we get all the terms there because Peter is writing to elders and he says, uh, not overseeing out of compulsion, and he says, shepherd God's flock among you. So that's why I have the First Peter 5 reference there under Acts 20 because you get all the terms there. Um, and you want somebody who wants to do the work, somebody who sees it as a good work and wants to do the work. Being an elder is a task. It's, it's a job. It's not an honorary degree for being a super Christian your whole life. And sometimes I think that's what it becomes, or that's how it's viewed. It's, it's not an honorary degree. 
It involves a lot of self-sacrifice, but it's also joyful work. It's, it's a good work. It's noble work. And it's the kind of work that we should all aspire to do. Whatever age you're at, we should all aspire to do that work at some point. We should all be the kind of men who aspire one day to have the wisdom and the experience to be on the hook for a whole congregation growing in maturity. Does that make sense? We should all aspire to be the kind of men who grow into that and have the wisdom and the experience to be on the hook for it, to be in charge of it. Next, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, above reproach does not mean perfection. It does not mean that you are disqualified if you are not perfect. One writer puts it this way. I think this is helpful. Being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with some acts. And so when somebody's name is said, when somebody comes to mind, there's no immediate question marks like, oh, well, well but what about that? Um, it's somebody where people think, oh, yeah, that's, that guy's a straight arrow. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, next, the husband of one wife. It literally means in the Greek a one-woman man. And this does not mean that an elder has to be married in order to be an elder. Um, you know, think about it. What if, what if a guy's wife died? Would that mean all of a sudden he has to be retired as an elder? That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, it's not easy to imagine a bachelor elder, in all honesty. Uh, I think because a lot of us derive a lot of wisdom from our wives. And so you want that complementarity. You want that teamwork. But it's not out of bounds to have a bachelor elder. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that an elder should have an exemplary marriage. An elder should have the kind of marriage that other people can look at and see a healthy marriage. And an elder should be entirely faithful to his wife. That's what it means by being a one-woman man. An elder should be entirely faithful to his wife. Any questions there? If we have questions about particular things, we can, we can get them at the end too. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. These all kind of flow into one another. Sober-minded is also translated as temperate. An elder should be entirely in possession of himself and able to say no to himself. He shouldn't be ruled by anything. He shouldn't be enslaved to anything. And um, if you remember from this summer, the last of the four cardinal virtues was temperance. And one of the ways that I describe that is that temperance provides the banks so that the river of your virtuous life can flow with power and energy. Temperance provides the banks so that it doesn't all just dissipate out. Temperance is the virtue of self-possession, keeping yourself within yourself and possessing a well-ordered life. So an elder is sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. He's also hospitable. That's the next one. So an elder should be someone who is uh, eager and comfortable inviting people into his home. And for us, this has probably already been shown through being a home group leader and, and having people into your home for home group, whether you lead it or not, but having people into your home for dinner or to, or to have home group at your house, being comfortable with people, uh, showing hospitality to others. Able to teach. 
Okay, so let's, let's pause here. This will take a little bit longer. Able to teach. So this is where a lot of guys go, ah, oh, dang, well, I'm out. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a one-woman man. I'm sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. I'm hospitable, but, you know, I, I see what you and Chad do on a weekly basis. I, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. So it looks like I'm never going to be an elder. Well, not so fast. Again, think of the context in which we're talking about this. Elders were going to refute error. They were going to refute error. They needed to be able to explain the Christian faith. They needed to be able to explain the gospel and demonstrate how relying on circumcision and the works of the law was incompatible with what God had done in Christ. That what God did in Christ fulfilled all the shadows from before. And so elders needed to be able to explain this to people. Were these guys given sermons every week? Probably not. They probably weren't. But they could clearly and confidently explain the gospel to others and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that had gone before. This is filled out a little bit more in Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders were not called to innovate. They were to hold what had been given to them and to be able to communicate it clearly and to refute error. Does that make sense? Does that alleviate some of the pressure, maybe, that you had felt before? Like, well, if, you know, if I aspire to be an elder, I don't, I don't teach and so I can't do it. I think it's a totally different context, totally different from how we think about teaching today. We should all aspire to be the kind of men who can hear false teaching that will lead people astray and clearly and confidently refute it and be able to clearly and confidently share the gospel. Again, think of, think of these prior types. Guard the flock. Elders and deacons guard the flock. You don't have to be a seminary-trained pastor to guard the flock. Adam failed in his task of guarding the garden. The serpent came in and talked to Eve, and Adam didn't do anything about it. He failed. Elders and deacons can't let that happen. And so when, when the serpent is getting in and talking, we have to detect it. Elders and deacons have to detect it and root it out. Next qualification is not a drunkard. It doesn't say that an elder must abstain from alcohol. And similarly, a deacon must be not addicted to much wine. So you can't say that elders and deacons are forbidden to imbibe alcohol. You can't get there from the scriptures. But an elder must certainly possess the self-control and the capacity for self-denial to be able to abstain when there's a need to abstain whether temporarily in, in a specific situation to abstain or to abstain permanently, depending on what the situation is, what the context is, an elder and a deacon must be able to have that capacity to lay that down if that's what's required. So it doesn't say you have to be a teetotaler, but you have to be able to be a teetotaler if it's necessary. Does that make sense? We can talk about that again later too if we need to. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. In a context where error needs to be refuted, you don't want some hothead who's just firing things off or degenerating the con uh, conversation into sarcasm and that kind of thing. 
this, this man should be gentle in his correction. And again, I think of, of the passage in James 1 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen? Not a lover of money. The New Testament is saturated with warnings against being a lover of money, against letting money have a grip on your heart. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's in 1 Timothy 6. But 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I think this has a financial aspect. Nobody knows exactly what double honor means, but I think it has some kind of financial aspect to it. If somebody is laboring and preaching and teaching on a full-time basis, then they have to be taken care of financially in some way. And so um, it seems like that's what happened for elders who were engaged in preaching and teaching on a full-time basis the church was seeing that their needs were taken care of. And that has something to do with double honor. Um, that's how we do it here. Chad is a full-time preaching and teaching, caring for the church, laboring for the church. The church supports him and, and provides for his needs, him and his family's needs. But if an elder's mind is always on money and always thinking about how to get more, always thinking about the financial angle to things, that's a danger sign, and you don't want that person in charge. Okay, now we get into a couple of things that are a little bit longer explanations. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So marriage and family are proving ground for elder fitness. They're proving ground for elder fitness. How well somebody interacts with his family, leads his wife, loves his family, and leads his family shows what kind of elder he will be. A father guides children toward maturity, and an elder is part of a team that guides a whole church toward maturity in Christ. And so, you know, you want to look at an elder, a, a potential elder's home. What's the environment of the home? Um... You know, and sometimes, sometimes kids go off the ranch. Sometimes kids get older and kids have free will. And sometimes they make their own destructive decisions. decisions. And so we want to ask, was the father engaged or was the father checked out during that time? Was, was he not engaged while that was going on? Titus 1.6 says, so this is kind of a place where the, the same qualification is in Titus, but it's said differently. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so we want to ask, what if a man is an elder and has a kid or kids who go astray? Does he just get defrocked? Do we remove him from being an elder? Or do we never consider someone to be an elder who has a, a child who goes astray? Well, a couple of things I want to say to this. <clears throat> One is that probably the most important is that hopefully if we're doing this right we will have conversations with that man all throughout the time when that child is making destructive decisions hopefully we will have constant conversations about how things are going 
And hopefully the man will be looking for input about things that he can do. Hopefully our lives will be open to where we can say, you know, brother, what do you think about stepping away for a time so that you can focus exclusively on this and not have to also think about caring for the needs of the church and shepherding the church? What do you think about stepping down for a time? Does that make sense? It's, it's, uh, it protects him and it protects the family to be able to have those kind of conversations. Hopefully we're open and honest all along the way. And the other thing I want to say to that is I, I, I always think of 1 Samuel 8 in this regard. This is verses 1 through 3. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And I'm like, Samuel. I mean, it's Samuel. He is a godly man. He's a godly priest. And his sons turn away and they they take bribes. And I also think that um, Adam was God's son. God is the perfect father. Adam disobeyed. Israel is God's son. Israel wandered from the truth and disobeyed. Only Jesus was the perfect son. And so I think we need to have live conversations uh, with men, with all of us. As we go through things with our children, we need to be open with each other and be able to have live conversations about what's going on in our homes, right? All right, next. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So elder implies wisdom and experience, and that's, that's something that a new convert just isn't going to have. And I think another, we see another thing here, that the devil goes for elders. The devil goes for elders, because if you take down an elder, you're going to take down some other people too, who look to that elder as an example of godly living, and their faith may be shaken. And uh, so the devil goes for elders because you, he takes other people with. And I'm going to come back to this toward the end. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If I were to be ordained, I would hope that the ordained guys who are overseeing that process would talk to my directors at work. I report to two different directors. I would hope they would talk to the directors at work. Maybe talk to some of my colleagues. You know, what's Kelly to work like? Or what, what's Kelly like to work with? Oh, Han? Oh, my gosh. Lazy. Always foisting his work off on other people. Comes in late. Just terrible. Maybe even talk to my neighbors. Oh, yeah. The, it's just, it's terrible living next to the Hans. Am I the same person following Christ in all aspects of my life? That's what it gets down to. Well thought of by outsiders, people outside the church. Real quickly, I want to run through qualifications for deacons. This picks up at verse 8. And the qualifications for deacons are almost entirely the same as that for elders. But I want to read this section anyway. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So five points that I want to make from all of this, kind of five application points, five things to take away. The first one is that mundane wins the day. Mundane wins the day. And, and I, I hearken back to the fast. If you were with us on Saturday night when we ended the fast, Billy shared Janet Hellman's word that she got during the fast about uh, kind of the beauty of the mundane. And she referenced how because Boaz was faithful in some very mundane things, God used him to redeem and bless and to be part of the lineage of Christ. And the challenge that Billy gave was for us to follow God's word and to not swerve from being faithful to the mundane things in our our lives together, in life with our family and our work. To not swerve from those, but to be faithful in all the mundane aspects of life. Again, think of some of these qualities. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, faithful husband, a tuned-in parent. These are not flashy qualities. These are mundane qualities. You know, the job description for a modern leader, somebody who's looking for a CEO of a company, um, it's things like high energy, visionary, thought leader, somebody who can put on a headset and prance across the stage and get people really excited about the latest product release. Well, that's not these guys in First Timothy and Titus. They are not flashy guys because they're guarding and they're protecting God's flock. And what Timothy and Titus needed were guys who were faithful, who knew how to stay awake, who knew how to refute error, and who would put themselves in the way of harm. And they have skin in the game. That's what Timothy and Titus needed. And that's not flashy. Here's another reason why mundane wins the day. And this goes back to uh, when the elder takes, or when the devil takes down an elder, he takes others too. This is this is a little bit later in First Timothy. This is in four sixteen. Paul says this to Timothy: Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. You know what's implied here? People's salvation can depend upon the behavior of their leaders. People's salvation can depend upon the behavior of their leaders. Every time you hear about a pastor falling into sin, whether through affairs or embezzlement or something, the story that isn't told are how many people lost their faith and walked away from God because of what that leader did. That's the story that's quite often not told. How many people have you met who have said, that they're not Christians because they got burned by the church. Whether legitimately they say that or illegitimately, a lot of people say that. Those are high stakes. Would you agree? Yeah. Which is why elders and deacons are first tested, and they're also to be beyond reproach. Mundane wins the day because the stakes are high. And so if you're an elder, or if, if you may be an elder at some point, If you're being considered for eldership at some point, you should expect to be asked, how boring are you? Just how boring are you? You know, 
Are you still using an iPhone 5 and you've never watched Stranger Things? Because if so, you know, come on board. We got, we got a place for you on the team. It speaks volumes that we're told a lot more about who elders should be than what elders do. This has always been kind of an annoying, an annoying thing to me in the scriptures, that we don't really get job descriptions for elders and deacons, not in-depth, detailed job descriptions. I like job descriptions. I like to know what I'm accountable for. I, I don't like vagueness and fuzziness. But we get a lot more about who these guys are supposed to be, and I think that speaks volumes to us. So that's number one. Mundane wins the day. Number two, elders will almost certainly be older men. They just will. Older men are more likely to possess these mundane qualities. The, the, these qualities brought to their full maturity and flourishing requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of experience. And so you're just most likely going to find these in older men. How old? I don't know. I don't have a specific age. Again, I like specificity. I would love for a specific age. You know, I knew that I could drive when I was 16. Um, but there is no specific age for elder. But I would say this. I think I've outlined very hefty responsibility. Have I not? Do you really want that responsibility in a younger man? Do you really want that responsibility in the hands of somebody who's 25? Probably not. So elders are, are more likely going to be older men. We should all aspire to be older men who have the wisdom and the experience and the steadiness of life to guard and protect God's flock. Deacons probably can be younger men who then eventually become elders. Again, this is not a hard and fast thing, but I think that's, that's maybe one way to look at it. The deacons are younger men who serve faithfully and then become elders later on. I'll come back to this a little bit at the, at the very end. Number three, we need a plurality of elders and deacons. We need a plurality of elders and deacons. And again, I mentioned before that these terms are most often used in the plural. There's safety in numbers. That's the main thing. There's safety in numbers. On a team, other elders can confront somebody who's not living up to the character qualities. If there's just one guy and he's not living up to the character qualities, who's going to confront him? But on a team, you can have that. On a team, if a deacon needs to step away for a time, there are others who can fill the gap. There, there are others who can make sure that the needs don't fall through the cracks. And on a team, you can increase the diversity of gifts that are available to the congregation. You, you get different gifts that get dispersed throughout the congregation. So there's safety in numbers. Does that make sense? Number four. This one's probably my favorite one. Number four. These are not offices for superhumans. These are not offices for superhumans. The character bar for elders and deacons is high compared to the world. But it is not for the top 1% of Christians. If we read it that way, we're reading it incorrectly. So again, think about some of these qualities. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not a lover of money, 
one woman man, active parent. This is not Billy Graham. Okay? This is hopefully who we are all already becoming and just growing in maturity in all those qualities so that they can flourish. You don't have to be a once in a generation Christian to be an elder or a deacon. We should take these qualities extremely seriously and see ourselves progressing in all of them. Amen? That leads me to the last one, number five. A man who is maturing in Christ will aspire to these offices. If you're maturing in Christ, you will aspire to these offices one day. But that means that first, you have to desire to help individual people grow in becoming like Christ. And you have to be willing to disciple some guys. And that means rearranging your life in a lot of ways. And then you probably need to lead a home group which is helping a group of people grow in Christ-likeness. And that involves rearranging your life in a lot of ways. And perhaps along the ways you're faithful in that, you're ordained as a deacon, and you keep serving, and you keep leading, and you keep deaconing. I don't think that's a word, but I like it. And if you do that long enough, then maybe you become an elder. And, And maybe you're wise enough and you're experienced enough to be part of an elder team who can help steer the church through our world's stormy seas. And you can be the, we can be the kind of men to whom Peter says this in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Amen? Amen. I want to take uh, some questions. Hopefully you have some questions. Does anybody have any questions right off the bat? Um, You seem to advocate the step going from deacon to elder, which I think maybe Christians, you know, hundreds of years ago did, but I don't know if we're familiar with that concept. Is that something that we do? It's not something that we specifically do. So um, just for those who will listen, the question is uh, a kind of a step process of going from deacon to elder. Um, It's not something that we specifically do. We have elders who were not or we're not deacons first. Um, I think it's one possible way of looking at it. Because I think uh, you, would, you could probably, I think a younger man is not likely to be an elder, but could be a deacon and do, do the, the deaconing work and then eventually have the, the maturity, the age and the experience to be an elder. Um, the background over the last couple sessions have been so great just looking at our church in general. Would you and Jess talk about how you guys look at elders and deacons and numbers and process as it relates to CF? Yeah, you might want to come up yeah, <laughs> and I, answer some of these. So an obvious question is uh, that, well, should we have more uh, in TCF, let's say? And I would say yes, and I, I hope for that. Like I hope in the next year to have two to three more ordained people. Uh, ordained as deacon or an elder. But it's also worth noting that the, the ordained leaders from the other churches act as elders and deacons for us, right? So Billy and Ben and Tom and Kent 
have that role as well. But as our all of our churches grow, so you know, I I hope for TCF to have more. I, I think the thing out of all of this that rings my bell the most is a deeper bench, a deeper and deeper bench. Um, so that's that's something I think we're moving toward in this next year. I don't know if that answered. Yeah. Jason. Just something that uh, I see, and I'm not trying to be uh, uh, cause an uproar here of any kind. For those of you listening, Jason is trying to create an uproar. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that can be said about, in, in, in short order, uh, I guess, Eve is the only female on the list that I see up there. Uh, what would you say about that? Uh, right. No, it's a it's it's a good question. I think uh, I think the typological correspondence for Eve is that she is the helper, um, and, and it's not so much emphasizing the femaleness when you look at at the rest of the examples there. Now, as far as the conversation of why only men are ordained and not women, um, that's probably a broader conversation that's that's beyond this. But as far it, but you make a great point in that one of the one of the non-negotiable qualifications for an elder is that he is male. Um, we, we don't ordain women. And so um, it's a qualification that Paul doesn't specifically list here, but it is a qualification nonetheless. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a question. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask myself a question, partly because this question might be so, a question that some of you have but might not want to ask. And, uh, but I, I think it's good to, to ask. So I, the second point I made was that elders will almost always be older men. Um, and so some might ask, well, what does that mean as far as Matt Henderson is an elder in LCF and Matt is in his early 40s? And so I, I, I do want to address that because it, it might be a question that comes up later in your mind. And I want to say a couple of things. And the first one is that um, as far as age there, there are no hard and fast rules to this. And, and I certainly did not this morning want to bring hard and fast rules that we bind ourselves to. There, there isn't a specific age qualification. Um, these qualities, as I said, will most commonly be fully mature and flourishing in an older man because of the, the years that are required for them to develop. But sometimes, they are fully mature and flourishing in younger men. Sometimes they are. And when they are, there is absolutely nothing wrong with making that person an elder. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's the wise thing to do. So that's the first thing I want to say about that. The second then corresponds to that. Anybody who knows Matt knows that these characteristics are mature and flourishing in his life, that he is an example, he is somebody that we can look to as an example of mature Christ-likeness. And anybody can sit under his eldership without concern. And so then the third thing is that um, there, there is no problem with it. Um, I, there is no implied criticism in me saying that elders will generally be older men. 
Um, I have no problem with it. And even if I did, who am I? It, it really wouldn't matter. Um, so I, I hope that alleviates any concern. There's, there's no implied criticism of LCF or Matt in that. Does that make sense? Does that help? Uh, just okay. an observation. Um, if y'all think about the, these letters, it's not like Timothy and Titus are hearing for the first time about elders and deacons at this moment. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. They would have had multiple conversations. If you think about it, these documents are to be read publicly in the church. Yeah. So imagine Timothy reading this. In part, this is to give the church guidelines. Also to give maybe men in the church who maybe aren't qualified but are wrangling for power a moment of sting. Like, oh, yeah, okay, this, this is not me right now. Or vice versa to encourage things. So I, I think just to underline your point about it's not these hard and fast rules, it's guidelines. And specifically, Paul, I think, is engineering them for these congregations to hear so that they can, because one of the most important parts about this is congregations saying, yeah, that guy, yeah, that guy. Right. Um, yeah. That's good. And, and it, I also think you know, Timothy and Titus both traveled with Paul and went to these places where there were elders in congregations. So they, they interacted with elders. They were very familiar with the concept. Paul is giving some guidance about what specifically to look for, probably given the context that they were in and, and the difficulties that they were facing. Yeah. Um, kind, of, kind of related the, about the, the young man thing, or the old man thing. Um, what, where's the line, the delineation between an elder and a pastor, priest? Because I think a lot of times young men get started on the pastor track at a young age. Right. Yeah, that one is that one is tricky. Um, here's my best attempt at it. Chad may have, Chad will probably have something better. It seems in the New Testament, a lot of these churches were team led by elders. I don't know if the the pastor, as we understand, a pastor like Chad today was necessarily common in the early churches, where there was one guy who um, was, was the guy, the pastor. And so, um, you know, again, when Paul calls, uh, when Paul is near Ephesus, he calls the elders. He doesn't call a pastor. He doesn't call a guy. He calls the elders. And so I think the structure was different in how they did that than it is today. Over time, there, there became where there was, was somebody who was, more exclusively than the rest in charge of preaching and teaching and still functioning on a team. But um, I think that that's something that changed over time. Does that sound yeah, I mean, reasonable? I, I think of pastor as essentially one of the elders or an elder yeah. as a species of elder. And um, I could see a diversity of structures emerging in our churches like you know, maybe one church. I mean, currently, right now, LCF has certainly, there's several elders, but they have all kinds of people teaching. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think I would see a flexibility in the way some of that takes shape. But I, I think that we have tended to treat pastor as an elder, one of the elders, yeah. not a CEO. Yeah, I think flexibility is key in how these things are worked out flexibility in the qualifications and the characteristics is not that we don't want to be flexible on that. Yeah. 
those we want to to hold to. And I and I just touching real quickly on what you said. In a lot of churches, especially in in mega churches, especially in evangelical churches, the pastor is kind of like the CEO, and the board is kind of like a board of directors. Or in a university context, the pastor is kind of like the president, and the elders are like the board of trustees. And so the pastor, you know, just gets the the board on board with what he wants to do. It's not a good model. It's not a biblical model. And it's certainly not anything that we take from these. Uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So the term was... How does how yours read? Can you read that last part again? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Yeah, it's interesting. In the ESV, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, where that list of, of ministries comes up, um, it, are, which one are you using there? The one the apostles use. Oh, the, <laughs> King, King James 1611, the, the, the apostles use. Um, which one is it? New American Standard. New American Standard. In the ESV, uh, it says uh, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And, and some commentators make the argument that that should be understood as shepherd teachers, that it's, it's really one, um, and that, that the shepherds are teaching. It, that word, shepherd, it's the same word that's used for vocational shepherds. I mean, the guys who are out there um, and, and went to see Jesus when he was born, shepherds, it's the same word. Um, and, and so the ESV translates it as shepherd, as, as I think they should. Josh. So stepping outside the realm of the hard and fast rules like the qualifications, mm -hmm. obviously these things here are the primary things we should be aspiring to. The stepping outside of that, do you see anything else that is like good things to try to aspire to to be able to, like for Deacon, like you know, you look at Patrick, who's really good at a lot of things that are very useful for serving. Mm -hmm. Do you see those skill sets or things like that as something worth I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think of, you know, when I think of Patrick, I think I certainly think of skills that he has with building, with repairing, with planning, organizing. Um, but I don't think I don't think we w only want to think of deacons as those who can do facilities and grounds <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, I think a deacon could could certainly be in charge of. Uh, children's church ministry or be in charge of things that have to do with um, finances and and that kind of thing in the church. I think it's multifaceted um, and, it, and it would largely have to do with what the needs of the church are and what uh, what, a, what a man specializes, you know, what he does very well. I, I think of range and flexibility. Just skills across the board. I mean, if you think about Stephen's job of distributing food to thousands of widows, we're talking a lot of mm -hmm. different skills that are going on there. So I, I just think in terms of just in life, you know, get experience and skills in a lot of different things that, that you can in your job and in various areas. And I think that translates to service to the church or can translate to service to the church in all kinds of ways. Yeah. 
Last question. How can someone who wants to aspire to be an elder to can get better at being able to teach? Oh, well, that's great. What? Do, better how? At getting, being better at teaching. Yeah, somebody who aspires, how can they get be better able to teach? I think it is, it is reading the scriptures constantly, constantly, constantly. Knowing them inside and out and, and being able to explain a lot of the concepts in, in ways that are accessible to people. And so not relying on a lot of abstract language, but being able to break it down and give it to people. And that's why I think in a lot of, most of the scripture is not spoken in abstract language. You get, you get very concrete things. You get rocks and trees and stars and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, sometimes in Paul's letters, you get some abstract concepts. But um, when Jesus taught people, when he taught in his parables, it is down to the ground stuff. And so I, I think a lot of it has to be becoming so familiar with the Bible that you can clearly and confidently explain things to people. Yeah. Maybe, maybe discipling people along the way, because that's sure. Yeah. Right. Something I'm not good at, I'll just note here while everybody hears it, is getting people to teach now and again that don't normally teach. That's a way to sometimes give people experience and give a congregation a sense of, oh, yeah, this guy has a gift. I know at LCF, uh, Victor, Kenton Senna, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of guys. Schaefer. Schaefer. A couple of guys have taught recently because they're just trying to give those guys experience. Right. So I think that's something else, too. Is, yeah. The teaching the Bible class. Um, that's if you can teach the Bible to little kids, that, that that says something. Yep. So, you know, we we have typically stuck with the dads, and particularly the dads of those who have kids in the class. Um, but I probably want to rethink that sure. and 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 deepen that bench so that more guys can get experience in being able to teach. Yep. All right, I've gone. And-